The last page has been turned on my most recent read and I'm enjoying another cup of tea because my studio is like a fridge and I can actually see my breath. Not a good move at any point in the year. I've been promising you something different for a while and this week I really think I've delivered. Not only is this a relatively new release as I record this, but it's also a new adult fantasy. Though the book isn't that long, it actually took me a while to read as I got completely absorbed in the world that the author has created. If you follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you will already have seen a few pictures of the cover of this book, and it is stunning to look at. Shades of warm browns, golds, a dark peachy orange, it's really warm colours in general. Now, I know you should never judge a book by its cover, and I have been burned by this habit a few times. However, I don't think this book is one of those times where you will be disappointed. Join me on a journey through the sometimes terrifying and often dangerous land of Midran, and enjoy the tales of Kissin as I talk about Godkiller by Hannah Kainer. So here I am, no spoilers, opinion-filled as always, and ready to roll. All of which means it's time for the latest episode of Being Bookish. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, introvert, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and ex-coffee addict, which apparently some of you are struggling still to get used to. So am I. Join me on my journey through my ever-growing to-be-read pile and enjoy the latest of my 100% spoiler-free book reviews. For this week's book, we're travelling to dark and mysterious mythical lands where gods and humans battle for dominance and worship and the everyday person is trapped in the middle between the rituals and the comforts of the past and the rules of the present. So light a few candles, or perhaps just switch on that reading lamp, I definitely have, because a bit of atmosphere is always a wonderful accompaniment to a reading session. Get yourself a fresh cup of something hot or a glass of something chilled, depending entirely on when you're listening and your preference, and let's get started. Kissin's family were killed by zealots of a fire god. Now she makes a living killing gods and enjoys it. That is until she finds a god she cannot kill. Skeddy, a god of white lies, somehow bound himself to a young noble and they are both on the run from unknown assassins. Joined by a disillusioned knight on a secret quest, they must travel to the ruined city of Blenraden where the last of the wild gods reside. To each beg a favour. Pursued by demons and in the midst of burgeoning civil war, they will all face a reckoning. Something is rotting at the heart of the kingdom, and only they can be the ones to stop it. As with all stories, we need to start at the beginning, but I am going to be incredibly careful not to reveal anything that would spoil the story for anyone who has yet to read it, mostly because it's really new. Kissin is working from slumber as her wrists and ankles are being tied. She can tell that she has been drugged and she is barely conscious, but aware that she is not alone. 
Her whole family is with her. Her father was the favoured of a citizen, a god of the sea, and it is for this reason that Kissin and her whole family are being sacrificed to Seth, the fire god. In exchange for her favour, the people of Kissin's village are sacrificing those who don't worship at Hesseth's altar. Kissin already shows herself to be a survivor. She fights against the people she thought were her friends, and her father makes himself a willing sacrifice to a citizen, the god who he loved and loved him, in exchange for Kissin's life. Fast forward 15 years and the world is a very different place. Kissin is full of resentment, but her career as a vega, or god killer, is one that is sanctioned by the king. For me, vengeance always makes me think of Inigo Montoya and his search for the man who killed his father. Everyone knows that. My name is Inigo Montoya, you killed my father, etc, etc. However, Kissin's search for vengeance against the god for whom her family died is not one that will get her in trouble with the law. She is able to seek out and rid the world of the creatures that inspired a whole village of people to sacrifice her family. And of course, since that moment in her childhood, the world has changed a lot. Seeking out blessings from the gods, worshipping them, building their altars is forbidden. King Aaron is the sole survivor of his own family, everyone else having been destroyed in a war between the people and the wild gods who sought to rule. Anyone suspected of participating in worship or going on a pilgrimage will be punished to the full extent of the law. And Kissin's duty is to enforce that by destroying the gods who are given power by such things. The biggest problem with making faith illegal is that those for whom it is a way of life will never fully give up their prayers, and these give the gods strength. In many ways, this aspect of the world that Kissin lives in reminded me of American Gods by Neil Gaiman and the way that the dying gods were desperate to find people to pray to them in order to maintain any sort of existence, hence the rising of the god of media in his world. When we first meet Kissin again, she is searching out the shrine of a small water god, Enerast, in the town of Enerton, surprisingly. He has been preventing towns from getting their water from a local source. Wanting their worship, of course. In destroying Enerast's shrine, Kissin removes his source of power, enabling her to kill him. Though someone in the town clearly reported his existence, the town themselves well, the people in it, are not pleased with this turn of events. They're unhappy with the change that the king has forced upon them and they would clearly like to return to the old ways because what harm can a small god do if they are loyal and continue to worship at his shrine? It is when she is in the local tavern that she is approached by a young girl who needs her help. Inara is the hidden daughter of a local noblewoman, her father unknown. She has a problem. For some reason that remains unclear, she is bound to a small god without a shrine. Skediseth, the god of white lies, cannot be parted from her, and neither of them know how this bonding came about. White lies seem harmless enough, but a white lie can be big enough that you deceive yourself into thinking everything is not as it seems. And this is the danger with Skeddy. Though when we're first introduced to him, all I could honestly think was, oh, he sounds so cute. 
He is described as having rabbit features with wings that give him the strength to fly and deer antlers on his head. Initially, I thought he was the god on the cover of the book, especially because of the antlers. However, he's a feature that appears balanced on a branch on the back cover and he looks just as adorable as I imagined him. So clearly he's described incredibly well. Inara needs Kissin's help, though Skeddy can't be killed without putting Inara's life at risk. Initially uninterested, Kissin tells Inara that she will take her home to her mother, but this plan is subverted when they return to the manor, only to see that it has been completely decimated by fire. Unidentified knights have destroyed Inara's home and slaughtered everyone who was in the house at the time, including Inara's mother. Inara is now alone, but for her bound god and the unwilling Vega. Unsure of what to do next and feeling somewhat obligated to Inara, though loathing the fact, and she doesn't make any bones about that, Kissin takes the young girl and Skeddy to Leskia, where she has made her home since her entire family was destroyed in favour of Hazeth. There is a comforting familiarity in the way that Kissin interacts with Yatho and Tell, her housemates, when she isn't travelling to destroy the remaining gods, a manner that humanises her. Until this moment, she has seemed heartless and driven, two qualities that are suitable when battling in human creatures, but not so much when dealing with a grieving child. Unfortunately for Inara, it seems that the fact she is bound to a god has made her more of an inconvenience to Kissin than someone that needs to be cared for. The story is told from several perspectives, so at this point I feel I should introduce Elagast, or Elo, as he is known to those who would be his friends, and us, the readers. A retired knight who became a baker, he is loyal to his king and went to battle at his side against the gods. He is happy in his new career, but when Aaron asks for his help, a pilgrimage to save his life, Elo cannot say no. And it is for this reason that Elo finds himself on a pilgrimage to Blenraden, the site of the God Wars, the place where many died, and the very same location that Kissin, Inara and Skeddy find themselves headed to. Unable to find a way to separate Inara and Skeddy in Leskia without killing one or both of them, though Kissin likely wouldn't have an issue with Skeddy's life force being drained, the only recourse is to go to Blenraden to seek the help of a powerful old god. It goes against everything that Kissin believes in, but there is no other option if she is to save Inara's life. Skeddy is also resistant. He doesn't trust Kissin. He knows that she dislikes his kind and wouldn't hesitate to kill him should the chance arise. However, as the god of white lies, he has a few tricks up his sleeve and he will use them should the need arise. Because as with everybody, his own survival is his first priority, despite the fact that he does persistently state that he cares for Inara greatly. The journey to Blenraden is a difficult one. Many days and nights on the road, the risk of being caught and punished with whippings for disobeying the law of the land and the word of the king is at the forefront in their minds. Though the peasants on the pilgrimage are honest about their motives, they have no reason to lie to the people who were also breaking the rules, 
Ello and Kissin have not only made up a story as to why they're visiting the shrine at Blemraden, but they also lie about who they are to everyone, giving them false names and identities. No doubt to protect their companions and themselves from the truth. Little white lies, of course, hurt no one, but do they realise that each one is giving Skeddy just a little bit more power? Until this point, I didn't actually even think about that. But as I was writing, reading through my own thoughts as I read the book and thinking about it to put this script together, it was like, well, aren't they using and calling upon his power? And with every little white lie they tell, they're building him up a little bit. Along the way, these unlikely companions become something resembling friends, realising that they have something in common, though they are still hiding from each other, and possibly from themselves. After a horrific event during which one of the young pilgrims is killed by a demon representation of a god, both Ello and Kissen expose themselves to the group as being far more than they said they were. But neither of them could stand back and let anyone else die unnecessarily. Kissen has sworn to protect Inara, and Ello's natural need to protect the people has stepped up and led to his revealing that he is not just the baker he declared himself to be. Yes, he is a baker, but beneath the surface he is still the man who stood beside the king as they fought the old gods in an effort to prevent their lands from being destroyed by their hunger. As this is the first in a series, the book does end on a cliffhanger, but it also ends with a huge revelation and a twist that I feel as though I should have seen coming, but I was so intent on the story as so much happens. I missed any and all hints that there was something else there floating just a tiny bit beneath the surface. I always promise no spoilers, so I will leave you with this. It's a twisty and turny book, but at its heart, it's a journey of discovery, of friendship and growth. And if you love fantasy, don't miss out on this one. I think that this is the first time I have reviewed a book so close to the release date. Am I surprising you as much as I surprised myself? Normally I wait a while and though I read many new releases, seriously I've got loads on my bookcase and quite a few pre-releases, I find myself drawn more often than not to the older books on my shelf, the ones I'm familiar with or have waited years to finally crack open the spines of. On this occasion, I thought that I would actually follow the trend, read something new, talk about something new, and maybe be the person that encourages you to go to Waterstones or your local indie bookstore to pick up a new ink-smelling hardback. Godkiller was released on the 19th of January this year, so it's a baby on the bookshelves. It's also the first in a series, so there's still a lot to look forward to if you enjoyed the first one. Anyway, less of that, let's get on with the reviews. 
As you know, I do like to provide a balanced perspective when it comes to the books I look at. And while my opinion will be what it is no matter what, taking a look at reviews from both ends of the spectrum can help somebody who's on the fence to decide whether they're going to read it or not. So before I give you my review, what did others think of Godkiller, the debut novel by Hannah Kainer? Laura wasn't a massive fan of the book and came very close to not finishing it. As with all books, it's subjective, so obviously this style of book and writing was just not to her taste. She said, This book was unfortunately not for me at all. The concept was intriguing, a journey with a god and young girl, a knight and a god killer. However, the execution left a lot to be desired. The plot was flat and uninspired. The twist at the end was painfully obvious from the start. The plot had one pace, medium. It was dreadfully boring. The characters were two-dimensional at best. Their turmoil and passions are shown to us in black and white from the minute one without a shade of nuance. The relationships were poorly developed and unbelievable. We do see development of some characters, but it is so overhanded and on the nose that it felt cheap and false. Overall, I found very little to enjoy about this book, and I think there are far better books available in this subgenre. I rarely DNF books, and I never DNF arcs. This book was the biggest test that standpoint has had. As a new book, there are currently not as many reviews available as there would be if I'd waited a few months to record this episode, especially as this was a release that had an embargo on reader reviews until two weeks before the release date. That said, there were 232 reviews on Goodreads and just three of those were negative, so less than 0.1%, if my maths is anything to go by, which it probably isn't a relatively good ratio that many first-time authors would probably love. Mine will be added, my review that is, after this episode has been released. I am determined that I am going to start reviewing my reads properly. I find it frustrating that there aren't enough reviews on some books when I'm trying to make things balanced, but I don't contribute my own opinions, so that's pretty weak and pretty hypocritical, to be fair. Right now, Godkiller has a rating of 4.5. One one on Goodreads, which isn't bad, but given the way that so many were gushing about it pre-release, it's actually somewhat surprising the rating isn't higher. Nyla clearly loved it, if her review is anything to go by, and gave the book an impressive five stars. To be honest, there were a lot of four and five star reviews, but many were incredibly long, almost essay-like in depth and gave away spoilers that I really don't want to reveal, especially with a brand new release. Give me book two now. In all seriousness, though, this is probably one of the best debuts I've read in a very long while. As a matter of fact, I'm surprised this even is a debut. The maturity in the writing with only the necessary words on the page to convey the story and feelings that matter is amazing. A great job on the author's and editor's part. It has the ease of writing of a YA fantasy book while being entirely an adult fantasy in topics and themes. The world is absolutely fascinating and allows for a lot of depth while bringing in something new and mystical to the already crowded fantasy scene. 
I really find the different gods fascinating, and the concept of humans making them exist through their wishes and offerings is maybe not entirely new, but definitely rarely used. The characters are all with a past to unravel and depth of character. I rarely like all of them, but here I can safely say that all POVs are necessary and give additional perspective on the events occurring in the book. Usually, multiple POVs throw me off, as I rarely care for half of what is happening with certain characters, but here, as the main protagonists are together for a major chunk of the book, it really helps to understand them, rather than showing the reader different plot lines converging, which I rather enjoy. The presentation in this one was mind-blowing. There is LGBTQ plus rep, but also mental health and disability rep, which, when you think about it, in a medieval magic-like world with swords, surely a missing leg or a deaf character wouldn't be totally unheard of, but I rarely see anybody attempting to give that rep to any MC. It's filled with strong and angry women who need nobody, but who can still be vulnerable and loving when the time comes. Overall, I loved this book. If you like fantasy and strong women leads with realistic characteristics, please pick this up. There's a lot to unpack when reading other people's reviews, and their rating depends incredibly on multiple factors, depending greatly on the type of reader they are. As an emotional or mood reader, I can love a book the first time I read it and the second time seriously struggle to get through it, so first impressions do count for a lot. It's why I rarely DNF a book. I abandon it until my mood changes, perhaps. I have many unfinished reads on my shelves. I really do. The Atlas Six is one of them. Right now, I can see three such books when I look at the books on my new unit in the studio. I don't know when I'll be ready to read them, but they are there when I am. Anyway, let's get to my thoughts on the book. So these are my views, completely spoiler free and as always, 100% honest. Did I like Godkiller? I am always really nervous when I pick up a book by a new author. Am I going to like their writing style? Am I going to like the way that they created their characters? There have been times when the answer has been no. And here I am risking a lot by admitting that I DNF'd It Ends With Us last year and cleared all Colleen Hoover from my wish list and shelves because of it. Godkiller was a pleasant and very welcome surprise. A couple of weeks ago, I was ill, so I took the chance to read my way through much of my outstanding NetGalley shelf and all the books for book tours and reviews through February. As they were books I really needed to read for a specific purpose, I pushed through and found that most were merely a meh rather than a wow. This week was a treat. Just one book read, but it was a book I knew I had to tell people about if they hadn't already heard of it, which was unlikely. In Godkiller, we have a world that has history. We have wars, dissension, misery, and a desperate race for power and wealth. This is the sort of world that I don't want to live in, but it's so rich in story that I loved reading it. I know that one of the reviews mentioned the characters felt two-dimensional, but I could feel Kissin's emotions, the pain that she's buried and that occasionally peeks through the anger she uses to cover everything. Elo's frustration and irritation at the situation he's been put in by someone he has long admired, 
and Inara's confusion and anger when something happens she is unable to control. And of course, then there's Skeddy, the winged rabbit-like god with antlers who is bound to Inara for reasons unknown. A god of white lies who uses his power mostly to protect his binding, but then manipulates those closest to him when it seems as though things aren't going the way he needs them to. These three people and a tiny antlered god, almost thrown together, they all have different missions with the same destination, and though they rub along together okay, there is the possibility that one or all of them will snap at any moment, and betrayal is never far away. I love a building's romance. There is something so exciting about reading about a character's growth. In this book, we get that four times over. I will say that this book is probably not as much for younger readers as the cover may imply. There are some sexual situations in the story, though the actual act itself is never explicitly detailed, and the lead-up and the language are certainly not 11-year-old friendly. Kissin is definitely bi or pansexual, and though she is attracted to men, she states she prefers the company of women because there is no risk of an unwanted outcome afterwards. Elo's sexuality is less clear, though it is suggested that he also finds both men and women attractive, and they each find the other attractive. In all honesty, the book would have been enjoyable with or without the mention of sexual attraction and intimacy, because they weren't necessary to push the story forward. I don't know if they're going to be relevant to the sequel. That they were added gives the characters something more to fight for or about, giving it even more dimension. The world that has been built, all the gods and the battles that have been won and lost, had an impact that is seen in the almost medieval environment that they live in. This is not an urban fantasy tale with technology. We're in a realm with swords and sorcery. Healing is achieved with herbs and poultices. Battles are fought with swords, armour and shields. And the gods are very, very real with altars and offerings and physical bodies that can be killed. So if you were to ask me, having just read this book, if I would recommend it, then the answer would be yes. And I would say that though I am not normally someone who falls for the hype, in this instance I would be lying. God Killer is a book worth picking up, enjoying with a few biscuits, or matchmakers in my case, and a hot drink, or seven, because I did read it over a week. I know it's not going to be for everyone, but if you really enjoy novels with a strong central female protagonist, characters that show emotional growth, friendships that build in hardship and through necessity, and a world where no gender is better than the other, then we have The Helpless Damsel and The Knight in Need of Rescue, then this is a book you'll get something from. Will I read more by Hannah Kana? As of right now, there is no more to read. Searching her website and her Twitter, the focus at this moment is understandably on the release of the first book. And if there are whispers of the sequel, then I have not heard them. But my ear probably isn't on the right piece of carpet. I don't work in the right industry, unfortunately, though I would like to. I enjoyed Godkiller enough that I will definitely be putting an order in for the sequel because I would love to find out what happens to Kissin, Elo, Inara and Skeddy. But there is plenty of time, 
And as they have been talking about Godkiller for almost 18 months, the chances are the second book will be some time in coming. If you're looking for something like this or you loved this and want something else, then you'll love these. This one is a bit difficult as I have already admitted that I don't read much in the way of fantasy. I do have a couple of new ones on my bookcase, however, that may fit the bill. Lattes and Legends by Travis Baldry is another book with a beautiful cover and illustrations on the end sheets. A Tale of Orcs and Adventure and a Coffee Shop is not quite the same as a story of killing gods and battling to save the world as you know it, but it is based in a fantasy world. If you love the idea of a strong female character saving the world and battling against powerful sources, then, though it's not a fantasy, the Skywood series by Brandon Sanderson could be just the thing for you. I talked about the first book last year with Chance and his daughter, and though I still haven't got around to reading the two sequels quite yet, they are on my list for 2023, though depending on the number of new releases I read they may well move to 2024 who knows I'll post a link to that episode in the notes if you want to find out why that could be a book you'll enjoy as I've already said a few times I did have a slow week when it came to reading but I have just picked up book 20 of the year And though there have been a few clunkers already, I have found a few new authors and I'm really enjoying working my way through a disorganised list. I would like to make it a little bit more organised though, so I keep on seeing these gorgeous book journals. So if anyone has a suggestion or a recommendation for a beautiful book journal, send it over, really, because I'd love one. I love writing in journals and I use my diary all the time for the book tours and everything, but I'd like one that has little stars in it so I can do my ratings and everything else. I'd like to get more organized with, especially with my TBR. I have sort of, sort of broken my self-imposed book buying ban that was only going to last for January. I will stress it was book buying ban January, not book buying ban 2023, because otherwise I'd be quite sad. Though I am justifying it by telling myself they were gifts as I used book tokens to get eight new books and a further two were received as part of book tours that I'm doing in late February and early March. I know that the momentum I have maintained for most of January is unrealistic and was in part aided by the fact that I was unwell for a full week. I know I won't be able to continue it for the rest of the year, partly because there are other things that I will need to do, like possibly getting off my backside and exercising and experiencing the outdoors, though I'm not a massive fan of it. And of course, also because my bank balance just won't be able to sustain my book buying habit forever. But I don't see books as a luxury. They are more like an extension of my mental health medication. The occasional sigh and crying over characters I love is great therapy and does cost less than a session with a real therapist. 
It's also much easier to buy a new book than push my way through the massive waiting list that just seems to get longer and longer as time goes on. All of that having been said, if there is anything on your TBR that you think I would love, I am not averse to getting more books. So definitely, please pass your recommendations on to me. You can send me an email at notbeforecoffeepodcast at gmail.com or DM me on Twitter or Instagram and I'll be sure to have a look. As I mentioned at the beginning of the year, the button for my newsletter has now vanished from Twitter as they have closed review. However, I have moved everything over to MailChimp and now I'm healthy again, I will be starting back on the newsletter schedule. You can sign up for it at my website, beingbookish.co.uk. Oh, and if you haven't seen it yet, I actually have TikTok. Yes, I have joined the 2020s a few years too late. Right now, it's primarily me unpacking book parcels that have arrived. There were a few of them, but I am planning on adding short book recommendations when I get the chance to record them. So keep an eye out. I'm being bookish reviews over there. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family and other book people? And please post a star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of the other podcatchers where you listen. You can follow me on Twitter at being underscore bookish and on Instagram at being bookish pod. Or you can check out my website, beingbookish.co.uk, which needs a bit of updating and upgrading for this year, I think. Well, I've got a lot to get ready for next week, and a new book is calling me. So until next time, this is me saying farewell. Farewell.